Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. I'm Stephen Pimper with the Public Policy Channel, and today I'm pleased to welcome Stephanie DeLuca. Stephanie is the co-author with Susan Clampett-Lundquist and Catherine Eden of Coming of Age in the Other America, published in 2016 by the Russell Sage Foundation. Stephanie... Welcome to the New Books Network. I'm Stephen Pimper with the Public Policy Channel, and today I'm pleased to welcome Stephanie DeLuca. Stephanie is the co-author with Susan Clampett-Lundquist and Catherine Eden of Coming of Age in the Other America, published in 2016 by the Russell Sage Foundation. Stephanie, welcome. Thank you for having me. Uh, so before we, are ten- we turn our attention, excuse me, to the book itself, I wonder if you might talk just a little bit about uh, your own background and perhaps uh, what it is that led you to this particular project. Sure. So I had the um, good luck of showing up in graduate school at just the right time. It was about 20 years after a major desegregation program um, was launched in Chicago that gave public housing residents, African-American public housing residents, a chance to leave Chicago's high-rise housing projects and in, in, in inner-city high-poverty neighborhoods and move to more affluent um, suburbs in, in the uh, you know, outlying counties. About 7,000 African-American families moved between uh, 19... Uh, uh, roughly the late 70s through the early 90s. And I, when I showed up in graduate school, it was about 15 to 20 years later. And uh, with my advisor, Jim Rosenbaum, I had a chance to see what had happened to these families and and the um, you know and really look at the question of whether it's not just the family you're born into that shapes your life, your life but whether it's also the neighborhood you grow up in. And so... Um, We uh, did a series of papers looking at the outcomes for children who had left high-poverty neighborhoods and moved to more affluent neighborhoods, as well as their parents. Um, And um, in the background of all of this, um, there was a lot of uh, fair housing activity. Um, obviously, there was a fair housing case, the Gautreau case, that led to this program in the 60s that went all the way to the Supreme Court. Uh, And public housing residents had... um, uh, were, were suing HUD and the Chicago Housing Authority for essentially uh, isolating public housing residents in the, in the most racially segregated, uh, economically disadvantaged communities in the city. And the, the plaintiffs um, won the case, and the remedy was the provision of vouchers to move to these more affluent neighborhoods in mostly white s- suburbs. So in the mix of all of this, um, some of the early findings were quite promising, and that led HUD, in addition to the fair housing community, to to say whether you know maybe we should do this, to you know in more places, uh, you know maybe this should be expanded. The idea that housing policy could be a lever 
um, for social mobility, the idea that housing policy could be social policy, could be health policy at the time. Um, and so um, HUD, uh, with um, an urging of, of, of researchers like Jim Rosenbaum, decided to launch a five-city study of housing opportunity uh, with a um, you know, a more rigorous design, an actual experiment, not just what we thought of as a natural experiment, which was the the fair housing remedy, but it, but an actual sort of gold standard, uh, randomized, uh, con- you know, random assignment controlled field trial, and um, and this was uh, 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 legislated and supported by Congress uh, in fiscal year ninety two ninety three, and then launched between nineteen ninety four and nineteen ninety eight in five cities. L.A., Boston, New York, Chicago, and Baltimore to sort of test the idea um, that that uh, neighborhoods matter and that the fortunes of some of our most vulnerable families would change if they got a chance to leave neighborhoods that William Julius Wilson and Doug Massey and Nancy Denton had all by the late 80s, early 90s said were toxic to uh, to, to child well-being and, and an impediment to racial relations and social mobility in America. So I showed up in graduate school in 1997 in time to study the the uh, the effects of the Gautreau program um, and then showed up in Baltimore uh, right in time to figure out what had happened with some of the moving to opportunity families. So the program, uh, this five city program that got launched was known as moving to opportunity. So I sort of had these two really serendipitous moments uh, that had nothing at all to do with whether I was talented <laughs> in any way. Um, and I tell my graduate students and my undergraduate students, sometimes this is about being in the right place at the right time and working really, really hard. Um, so I just happened to get a job. Uh, so I left graduate school at, at Northwestern in Chicago and moved to Baltimore uh, right around the time that it had, it, it had been four to seven years after the moving to opportunity experiment had been launched. And, um, the short story, well, the long story short, actually, is that the um, moving to opportunity experiment had showed in this interim evaluation period sort of mixed to disappointing uh, um, findings uh, compared to uh, the Chicago Gautreau program, which was a resounding success um, in, in, you know, in many people's eyes as a way to help Poor black families leave ghetto neighborhoods and have children enter better schools and do better. Mothers were, were, were more likely to work after they moved. You know, um, the, uh, the the New York Times hailed the control program as the new underground railroad. I mean, there was a lot. Phil Donahue and others had, you know, had, had participants of the program on. And then, you know, MTO was launched. That we call the Moving to Opportunity Program for short. MTO was launched. 1994 to 1998, four to seven years later, there are these mixed results that suggest children weren't doing any better in school when they had a chance to move to a less poor neighborhood. Mothers were no more likely to be employed or less likely to be receiving uh, welfare subsidies. Mm -hmm. Boys were more likely to get in trouble in uh, low poverty neighborhoods. But there was a a sort of a, a surprise positive finding in all of this, which is that Mothers and, and, and daughters experienced mental health benefits on par with best practices and antidepressant medication therapies, which was a, a surprise. Um, so, you know, but this, this was kind of a mixed story. So what, what happened is when I when I showed up in Baltimore in 2002, uh, Greg Duncan, uh, Jeff Kling and Kathy Eden had decided to launch a fieldwork study to figure out why these findings were so confusing. What happened? So that's my entry point into a study that would then last a decade. 
and result in coming of age. We started out being interested in a housing experiment and the role of neighborhoods, but it became so much more than that. So, I mean, that's perfect segue bringing us into the book. Can you talk first a little bit about uh, the study itself? Can you talk a little bit about sort of the, the methods in your approach, and then we'll turn our attention to what it is that you all discovered? Sure. So, you know, we did a couple of different things with the book. Um, you know, we, st- we started the, the fieldwork in 2003 here in Baltimore and interviewed mothers in primary caregivers in 150 families in Baltimore who had signed up for the MTO program. Uh, we also interviewed young adults in some of those families and some teachers and tried to get a sense of sort of what happened uh, with, with with their experience with the program and maybe what were some things you know that were anticipated um, that didn't come through and all that. So um, then you know we wrote a series of papers about that, but decided to keep going back and and finding out how, for example, the children who were zero to ten when when their parents signed up for MTO were faring as they began to transition into their own adulthood around 2010. Uh, they were about 15 to 24 years old at this point, and we um, we went back in deeply uh, during that time between about 2010 and, and 2013, and talked to 150 young adults. Um, who uh, some of of these young adults we had interviewed parents and older siblings for earlier, you know, in the in the 2003 study, but many we had met for the first time because they were young uh, in, in the early in the early part of the study, and you know we we. We spent time in their in their lives, right, in their communities, in their homes, in their spaces, um, in you know, in part to continue to understand the importance of neighborhoods, but also, I guess you, you could say, to try to get a sense of what the inner life of the inner city is like. What's it like to come up in a place like Baltimore? And what's special about our approach is is we did we did what we call narrative interviewing, sort of in depth interviews with young people that say, "Tell me your story, mm-hmm. welcome me, you know, it, it, you know, it, 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 welcome welcome me into your world so that I can be a student and you be the expert." Many of these young people had never had anyone sit down and ask them these questions. And we know we we had we were asking about, you know, educational transitions, of course, and work and family and risk behavior and all of that. But that we were also looking, you know, um, to hear them talk about meaning and um, you know how they make sense of their world. And so so our approach was primarily interview based, but we also um, you know spent time in you know more ethnographic mode hanging out and you know, parks and visiting the, you know, uh, uh, the doctor for a sonogram, moving one young man in with his girlfriend at their first apartment. So we, you know, we took that approach. And what we were able to do then is take advantage of the earlier data on these families a decade before the data we collect on these young adults and some of the the data from the MTO survey. So it was a multi-method study. Mm -hmm. Um, And what'd you learn? So, you know, I have to admit that one of the most striking findings in the book is, is something I never saw coming, mm-hmm. which is um, the importance of finding something to be about, something we call the identity project. So we went in as urban sociologists hoping to understand all these structural kind of top-down forces, you know, the role of neighborhoods, the role of schools, you know, the yeah. role of, of, you know, the the labor market and and what kept coming back in this bright 
um, strong way was a, a sort of a bottom up sense of what what life was like, and in particular, how these young people define themselves in in relationship to all of those structural things. And so, you know, we we thought we'd write a book about neighborhoods and schools, and we did. But we also uh, wrote a book about the significance of finding something you're passionate about, finding something that allows you to say, "I'm not about that life," meaning the street, right? So we found um, it's so during you know during adolescence, it's not you know it's not surprising to hear. You, you, you know, adolescents and young adults talking about identity. Mm-hmm. Um, this is, you know, developmentally rich period. You know, Eric Erickson told us this a long time ago. Right. But what we saw was that this this identity work, you know, whether it's a you know, hobby, uh, you, know, but, you know, an art outlet for art or um, social activities or, you know, a professional experience, an internship, what we saw this in many colors, whatever it was, it wasn't just a developmental task. It was about survival in a way that young people managed to get to the starting gate, so to speak, of, 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 of adult life. And the reason this was so meaningful is it was the biggest predictor in our study of, of being, quote, on track um, by the time we left, we left these young adults working or in school or both. The, the striking thing we found um, about their lives relative to their parents is that they made enormous gains with respect to education um, and, um, you know, in, in, important, in, in important behavioral domains. You know, for example, only about a third of these young people had a caregiver who had uh, achieved a high school diploma or equivalent, the GED, yet 70, over 70 percent of these young adults finished high school. Mm-hmm. You know, 13% had a parent enter trade school or, or some kind of college. Yet 50% of, of the young men and women we met had done that, which was 70% of the high school grads. Um, you know, half these kids grew up with with a parent addicted to drugs or alcohol. Half had, had a parent incarcerated at some point. Two-thirds had one or the other of these risk factors. A third had both. Yet by the end of, of our study, fewer than one out of five young adults had turned to the street. They had, you know, they had nearly universally um, heeded the call of, of work and school, right? This sort of American narrative, um, despite growing up with so much risk. And imagine this, right? while we're writing the book, you know, Freddie Gray dies. Mm-hmm. And Baltimore is, um, you know, an upheaval. And all you can see on television are images of these, you know, these few you young adults and, and, and older adults throwing bricks or, 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 you know, hitting a police car, giving the impression that the exception is, is the norm when we find, of course, precisely the opposite. Yeah. So, I mean, there are obviously all kinds of possible explanations you might turn to for why it is that, that these young folks seemed all else equal to be doing pretty well and certainly exceedingly well compared to what the the public image of, um, you know, teens and young adult African-Americans living in a place like Baltimore. Can you talk a little bit about sort of the range of possible explanations for how we might account for their relative well-being? And then I want to turn back to, to talking about the ways in which they may not be still doing so well. Um, and then how it is that you why it is that you all think that this this notion of the identity project is the most satisfying of, of those range of explanations. Yeah. So um, let me try another way of coming at that question, which is, you know, there's an intergenerational 
explanation and then there's a within generation explanation. So, you know, this these intergenerational changes that we saw, um, we argue in in large part were due to the MTO intervention itself, plus the demolition of the high-rise public housing projects. So what does that mean? Well, what it means is that, you know, these families were, were you know, they were in our study because they had signed, you know, they were living in some of the highest poverty neighborhoods in America. Um, you know, that in, in Baltimore was one of the cities that had put in for the proposal to be part of the Moving to Opportunity Experiment. Uh, um, and, uh, you know, so they were living in, in, um, in, in neighborhoods where the poverty rates exceeded 50%, right? And your typical average, you know, poverty rate in the United States hovers between, depending on the numbers, you know, anywhere from 11 to, to 14%, right? So these are extremely high poverty neighborhoods, extremely high, you know, high, high violence neighborhoods. So um, through the MTO program, which provided vouchers uh, and some housing counseling to leave these neighborhoods in, in move to neighborhoods where poverty rates were less than 10%, right? So this is part of what happened. You know, partially, um, you know, we saw that the, the families who, who signed up and got that, you know, moved to, to these neighborhoods that were um, remarkably different. But the families that were part of the experiment, known as the control group that didn't get anything, were living in housing projects that would then be demolished anyway. And, you know, things in Baltimore were so dire by the early 90s that the HOPE 6 program and the MTO program both came here. And so what we saw is everybody left the projects. And there was virtually nowhere at that time worse, right, in, in Baltimore. Um, and so these young people came up and, you know, spent part of their childhoods in neighborhoods that were much lower poverty than their, their parents came up in and then their, you know, then their older siblings, you know, grew up in Um and, you know, we think in part there was a neighborhood effect for, for all of these uh, young adults. And, and this manifested itself in two ways. One was that they were, you know, uh, in, in safer neighborhoods. Uh, they reported uh, feeling safer. There were lower rates of victimization uh, in their families. Uh, we heard this both from young adults and their parents. Um, and they were exposed to a wider array of adults, m- far more working neighbors, far fewer um single-parent-headed families, um, uh, more educated neighbors. So we think there was sort of a direct effect of being in a different kind of, of environment. Two, uh, the mental health benefits I mentioned earlier, uh, you know, that came through in the five-city big, you know, MTO experimental evaluation, we also saw in our deeper dive field work, um, we, several dozen mothers, you know, told us that they quit drinking and doing drugs after they left the projects and started feeling like they were they could parent the way they'd always wanted to parent. There was a, a parenting dividend with this, you know, with, with this, you know, mental health dividend and also some some, um, you know, reduction in substance abuse. And so you had this kind of um, newfound efficacy among some of the women, uh, you know, Tammy um, uh, was, a, was a mother, the mother of a young man named Antonio, uh, who's in her book. And, and she said that when she was living in, in the, uh, the flag house projects, uh, that it felt like she was trapped, caged and worthless, living in an atmosphere of absolutely no progress where no one encouraged no one. Those are, those are Tammy's words. And she said, I, I will, you know, I'll admit I didn't discipline my kids all that much because living there was a punishment. And 
when she moved to a, a, a safer, less poor neighborhood in Northeast Baltimore, she said, you know, we, we were able to then focus on routines and and family life and, and having meals. And so we, we heard this over and over again that women said, I was finally able to see what it was like to raise my kids in a positive environment. It made me want more. So you had, you know, you had several different things going on under this idea of neighborhood effects, which helps us explain, we argue, this intergenerational um gain in, 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 say, educational outcomes. Now, we were still left with a question of what what explains, you know, how about 80% of the young people were in school or working or both by the time they left our study, yet we had, you know, about 20% of the, of the youth disconnected, right, as, as some of the, uh, as some scholars call it, right, not involved in, in mainstream institutions um, like, like school or, you know, the labor market. What explains that? And this is where the identity project comes in. Now, all of these young people were in our study because of their shared origins, which were disadvantaged, um, not because they were, you know, um, the cream of the crop and not because they were, you know, hanging on the corner. Right. We have quite a range of, of outcomes for in, in pathways in this in the sample. Um, but uh, but what we saw is that um, the. You know, they, but the or, you know, origins were very, very similar. What we could observe and predict things on the basis of were really similar. But the one thing that seemed to sort of come through was this: was whether they cultivated an identity project. About half the youth did, um, and uh, it looked like this was the biggest predictor of being on track. Um, of course, you know, many young people who do didn't have what we could identify as an identity project managed to finish high school um, and stay off the streets. But um, but this uh, this cultivation of a, of a passion project of, 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 you know, an identity project really seemed to uh, make a big difference. Mm-hmm. But that that was no guarantee, right? That they'd find one? The, 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 the mere presence of an identity project was not necessarily... I mean, I guess what I'm getting at is that that it that that I worry that some folks might read the book as evidence that, well, see, we've been saying this all along. If you simply write work hard enough and if you try hard enough, that's all you have to do. And you can overcome any of these supposedly structural obstacles that are sure. in your way. That is not the argument that you are making, right? Right. And it's it's interesting, you know, to, to think about it like that, because, again, during the time where we were you know, in the field and, and analyzing the data, there was all of this discussion around grit that came up. Yeah. Um, you know, Angela Duckworth research, um, you know, and, um, you know, popularized by, by Paul Tuff's book, How, How uh, Children Succeed. And what we realized is that basically all of the young adults in our study were displaying some kind of grit every day. It wasn't a matter of finding gritty ones um, and not other ones, but, but, you know, what does that really mean in this kind of a setting, right? What does it mean to be gritty, um, you know, and just surviving the day, um, you know, versus achieving, you know, a college entrance or something like that. But the, the insight we found from the identity projects was that the, you know, this idea of grit doesn't just really, come out of nowhere it needs to be inspired and motivated and what we saw was the is you know finding something to be about was often the catalyst it sparked gritty behaviors around school and professional goals uh you know tony got an internship through the youth works program 
here in Baltimore, and he was able to work at the University of Maryland on the school pharmacy campus. He was, you know, sort of, um, you know, doing mail delivery, but also, you know, specimen delivery. And he got a chance to really be around medical professionals. And he said it was being around them and asking them about what they do and watching some of what they do. And that that sparked my interest to become a pharmacist. Mm -hmm. And that set in motion a plan to finish high school, and then um, he, you know, enrolled, he applied to the University of Maryland, but but um, and got in, but couldn't afford it. So he went to Baltimore City Community College and decided to try to get some of the prerequisites done um, in each semester. Ticks, you know, has this piece of paper in the fridge had the requirements written on, and each semester he takes one of them off, two of them off as he finishes them, and puts it back up on the fridge. And so, you know, there was this experience that opened up a sense of something he could be and something he could be excited about and that we all know what this feels like mm -hmm. it, it's important to have meaning and joy and excitement and purpose and that makes it a lot easier to persevere uh toward long-term goals as as is Duckworth defines grit. Yeah. And you also emphasize the 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 importance of there being uh an institutional location to channel that that identity project. Can you talk a little bit about the ways in which that plays out and how how important that is? Yeah, and and I'll say, you know, just a little more on that. I mean, I think you're right. I think you know, there's a, a slippery slope in saying, well, if kids find these things to be about, and you know, this is what allows them to succeed. But I think it's it's important because. Um, you know, it, it, I think, gives us some action items to say mm -hmm. we can provide opportunities and raw material for them to find, you know, to find something that they want to uh, devote their lives to and, and less so in youth policy, especially for non-college bound youth. And so I think what it does is gives us a window into how um, we can make a difference in the lives of, of young adults who are typically thought of as lost causes already. So that's just, you know, one thing I think is important, uh, you know, to emphasize that um, this isn't just about accountability testing in school. You know, it's about all of the other things that we've leached out of our schools, you know, art, music, debate, um, you know, community organizations that provide rich experiences. So, so, so this is, you know, sure, a naive reading of this is, you know, you know one where it's just kids have investments. Um, now, you know, the, and so we found a, a couple of different kinds of identity projects and not all of them are so, are, are so institutionally based. Some of these are just things that young people do alone to escape rather than engage, to protect and withdraw rather than, you know, to connect with mentors and other peers. You know, Vicki builds pigeon coops in her backyard and tends to these pigeons as a way to diffuse bouts of anger that she has, that she can't explain or control. Um, you know, Dana was videotaping herself in her bedroom with her dad's old VCR, reading her poems aloud, but it would be years before she would do this in high school and she felt more comfortable. And so, you know, the, these sort of do-it-yourself um, identity projects are are a lot um, less predictive of, of, of um, transitions to, to college and work, but they, they still serve an important purpose in the in the near term. Um, I think the institutional story is is powerful, um, right? And this brings into um, I think this brings to mind um, you know things like career academies and and career exploration and training, which as we show later in the book is something that these young people have so little of that they turn to for-profit schools to yeah. get um, at very, very high cost and very low yield. Yeah. There's a, just sort of as a footnote, we uh, spoke with Tressie McMillan Cotham a couple of weeks ago uh, about her book, Lower Ed, which is yeah. precisely about those for-profit institutions and the kinds of uh, – 
people who are are most likely to turn toward them. Uh, and there's sort of very interesting overlap here about the ways in which we produce people who are vulnerable to that kind of exploitation. We tell them that this is your way out, but we close off so many of those opportunities and we make even public universities in some places still wind up being unaffordable and, and hard to access. So we create this kind of buying even for those young people with passion and ambition. Exactly. No, exactly. You know, it's, 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 there's a convergence now, you know, Tressie's book is really important in this, in this regard. And, um, you know, when we went into the field, my, my thought was everyone's going to be aiming for four year colleges, right? This sort of college for all frenzy. And you're, we're going to see it, you know, uh, you know, low income students who, um, right. May, may not have the resources or the academic preparation, thinking they still, right, they need to go to a four-year school. I mean, I, I, at the time when we started this, I thought that was going to be one of the biggest um, patterns. And I, w- I was surprised to find out that, right, the modal pathway into higher education for the young people that we talked to in Baltimore was a for-profit school. Um, you know, of course, followed by a close second community college. But I think that the, you know, the... Um, Right. The, this this hunger to to launch this this desire to be someone and to, you know, to fill any of these these professional aspirations. Right. This is so strong. And and, um, and then you get this. Right. These young people are so vulnerable because they're ready to launch and do this. They don't have the scaffolding that middle class yeah. young adults have, which is to, you know, experiment with a gap year or, you know, try to go to this school and see if it doesn't work. You transfer. They know the, you know, the young adults in Baltimore know that they're in many ways on their own. And so they think, what's the quickest way to get stable? And what's the quickest way to do something, you know, that I can tell people I'm, I'm I can do right? This is a you know this 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 sense of identity, and and there are two ways to do it. One is to go right into the, the labor market, which many young men did uh, in our study. You know, of course, we saw you know quite a few more young women go into higher education than young men, which is consistent with national trends. Um, you know, but many many of the, the young men tried entering into. Um, you know, low wage service sector jobs um, quickly, and um, um, but, but many also tried these for profit schools, and in, 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 and we saw many young women were entering right into the certified nursing assistant programs and phlebotomy programs, because the commercials say you can have this certification in 12 months or 18 months. And then there's, there's pictures of, of professionals in offices doing things with dental equipment and, and they, they think, oh, okay, I can do this. It's quick and you know, in and out. And, and um, you know, before you know it, and that's what I need is what a young woman Ashanti as, as Tressie shows, um, those institutions often do an exceptionally good job of making that easy, of getting you enrolled and getting you started very, very quickly. Uh, which you know, arguably, some of of those more traditional institutions that that we've been parts of, um, they may not be as good at because they are not as committed to serving those student populations. Right. I mean, the, you know, and, and Tressie, you know, talks about this more than we do. You know, the recruitment efforts uh, on, on the part of these for-profit schools are are incredible. Um, yeah. You know, the, the money they spend on advertising and recruitment dwarfs many big companies like Starbucks and, and uh, um, you know, Wendy's or, you know, I mean, it's a lot. There's a big commitment to the upfront 
recruitment. And um, as the as we saw in the uh, SEC inquiry and, you know, this case against Corinthian colleges, right, that they, you know, uh, staff admitted that they targeted young people with low self-esteem who um, felt vulnerable and, um, you know, uh, didn't have a long-term plan. I mean, there's a very vulnerable sense of, of, you know, who they were going after. And in some ways that describes the, you know, the young adults in Baltimore that we met. Yeah. But, uh, you know, and part of what's happening here is that you you have, right, young people who are doing the right thing. They're they're trying to, to make a way for themselves. And, um, you know, and they launch quickly. And even if the, you know, the for-profit schools worked well, we'd still have this issue of, of this quick launch and this, um, you know, the structural context of having to commit to a program of study before you've had time to explore your interests. And so, you know, a young man named Jackson said, well, I didn't know. Right. That that doing uh, um, medical assisting, I'd, I'd have you'd have to use needles and, and, and put needles in people. And I, it was nerve wracking. Couldn't do it. And so he quit and tried something else. Right. The, the idea that that, you know, what these programs mean, what it would look like, how much it's going to cost to go, what the jobs will eventually pay. They have no idea. Um, yeah. So let's let's talk a little bit. Um, we're speaking with Stephanie DeLuca, co-author of Coming of Age and the Other America, um, and we have been talking about uh, young men and women in Baltimore uh, who uh, have surprised a lot of researchers and others by uh, by by doing just fine, all things considered, and certainly. Uh, not living lives consistent with some of the uglier public images of them, uh, but nonetheless are facing some considerable obstacles toward upward mobility, toward getting into jobs that are going to uh, allow them to pursue those passions in ways that are perhaps more lucrative than they might otherwise be. So, so is, I mean, we think about sort of the lessons of your book. What, what should Baltimore be doing, particularly in terms of public policies, in terms of things that are practical? And then maybe talk sort of about larger national policies that you think ought to be on our radar. So I think, you know, that Baltimore right now um, is in a bit of a, you know, a struggle. Uh, we have a new mayor. Um, you know, we have uh, a police department under consent decree. <laughs> you know, we have um, voters who just uh, uh, approved a, a, something called a, a child and youth fund, uh, the you know, Baltimore City Child and Youth Fund um, that puts aside $12 million a year to invest in young people. Um, and so what, what you have here is an opportunity Right. But you also have a, a, a tension between whether the answer to what's happening in Baltimore is to police differently or to invest in youth differently. Right. And so these are, you know, not mutually exclusive strategies, but I think it's it's tough, um, you know, in the shadow of of what's happening with crime and in, you know, this sort of larger um, fear among Baltimore residents about the young adults who live in, in our, our poorest neighborhoods. This, you know, there's this tension between, you know, how do we, you know, talk about these young people as assets instead of threats. Yeah. And this is, a, you know, this is about leadership and politics. And so I see an opportunity and, um, you know, this, the, the uh, child and youth fund is new. A task force has just been assembled. Um, 
And, you know, I, I, um, I hope to be able to work with them and provide some direction. Um, so this is one area, right, where we, you know, we, we went into the field after um, the unrest in, in the spring of 2015, um, while we were, we were still writing this book, um, to do kind of a, a rapid response look at young adults in the neighborhoods where most of the activity was was taking place they call it the they call it the riots this is this is not these are not the words everybody likes to use but this is their, this is their language you know the the neighbors were were that were most affected by the unrest in the in the riots even Mundaman, Santon, Winchester, Upton, Penn North and you know ask them what they thought about what had happened what do they think about the police the the city um, their futures and we heard a very sort of a brutal and, and sobering um, set of accounts that really converged on one story, which is a story of abandonment and neglect, mm-hmm. that these young adults felt like there was no way for them to become who they wanted to be in Baltimore as it was now, so much so that of the 60 young adults we talked to that summer, not one planned to stay here. And so, you know, there's a sense that Baltimore as has, as this young man, Jaden said, you know, become a setup city. They set you up to fail here. And so I think that what, what, you know, we're hearing from these young adults more recently in the wake of this very, uh, you know, tense period where they're finally going, oh, now people are paying attention to us. You know, um, you know, there, there's, you know, there's this, this sense that the rec centers have been closing, that there aren't enough jobs. They, there's, you know, not enough raw material to create oneself, as as Rhiannon, um, this young woman Rhiannon says. So we're hearing a lot of that. And yet what we found, of course, in our book is that if if um, young people can find some of these things, it can be game changing. So, you know, we're um, we're hearing a, a, a bunch of directions for Baltimore. Um, and I think the city has to make some tough choices about whether it wants to devote more of its attention to policing young people differently versus investing in them as the city's future and and it's some of its biggest assets. Um, are you hopeful? So I'm hopeful because I've never seen so many conversations in Baltimore um, around the um, you know around what to do. There you know, every day there's a new group that's forming and a new set of conversations that is is happening. Um, and I've lived here for 15 years, um, you know, so it's almost been kind of my hometown. I'm from Chicago originally. So, but, uh, you know, but it's been, I've never seen, um, these conversations happening to this extent now, whether they will come together and produce fruit, whether, you know, um, local politics won't get in the way. I'm not sure. I'm, I'm, I'm really not sure, but I think, uh, I guess the best way to describe how I feel is that we're in a moment and um, we have to make some tough choices. I'm optimistic because I see what young people in West Baltimore have been able to accomplish. I'm, you know, I'm optimistic about the raw material we have to work with. Um, but you know, I obviously feel some ambivalence about whether we're we're going to be able to do what needs to be done. Yeah. Um, and I will say that that I mean, I did walk away from coming of age in the other America with. Um, the feeling that it really was a very hopeful book. I mean, it's filled with, um, you know, an extraordinary number of amazing young people. Um, and that, you know, sort of always gives me, give me 
hope that even under extraordinarily adverse circumstances, uh, so many of them finding ways against all odds uh, to to make lives that will give them some kind of satisfaction. Um, it, it felt like anyway that that sort of permeated the book for me was that sort of sense that there really is um, a real disservice that we have done to young people of color in particular in the United States in the ways that they get talked about in public discourse and that really uh, betrays the reality of them in their lives. You know, I think that's right. And I am, you know, I'm encouraged to hear you say that, to, you know, you can walk away from the book with lots of things, but I think it also was a struggle, right, to, uh, to celebrate what they have managed to accomplish, but also point out, is that that um, you know it's hard to say is this you know, this is success by right. other measures in in because this again the, the intergenerational part of this is you know different from um, inequality, the inequality part of this right so you have these this this we see you know um, intergenerational gains you know as a result of, of of housing policy which tells us you know that 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 the transmission you know, of, of um, disadvantage is not inevitable. We can interrupt it if we invest. However, you know, there's also this question of inequality and separate and unequal spaces. And, you know, so I think that that part of the, the trick is to say what Cody, for example, has accomplished by graduating high school, the only person in his family to have done so is, you know, that's a huge, a, a huge um, uh, win. Now, High school is is the starting block, right? Sure. For I mean, we know what what the earnings premium is for for a bachelor's degree. So how do these young people compare to their middle class peers? Well, you know, my my colleague and, and dear friend Carl Alexander, um, you know, Doris Entwistle and, and Linda Olson wrote a book called The Long Shadow about a generation of, of Baltimoreans about ten years about ten ten years older than those we talked to, and they had higher income and lower income young people that they followed for a quarter century. And, you know, they show that um, in many ways, right, that the that this family level inequality does persist. And, you know, about 45% of the higher income young adult, you know, youth that they then, you know, children that they've followed from first grade through to their early 30s, you know, about 45% of the higher income adults had a bachelor's degree and only 4% of those who started out in poor families ended up with a bachelor's degree. So this is a, this is an inequality story that is powerful and important to remember in some of, you know, when we think about some of this optimism, but I, I think our book sort of shows under the hood, all of these ways that, that, that things are made possible. And, um, you know, if we want to invest that there is not an inevitability to family as destiny. And as and you I pointed out, I'm sorry, as you pointed out earlier, it's that it's not hopeless, too, right? Because so much of the, the literature on child poverty really has suggested that if you are not making those kinds of investments in very early childhood, then those then it is exceedingly difficult to do anything down the road. And I think this pushes back against that a little bit and says, no, there are, in fact, strategic investments that we could be making in young people that will bear fruits for them and for their communities. I think that's right. I mean, that is certainly one thing we're pushing back on. I mean, we can't deny the fact that investing early right. goes very far. But but Bell Sawhill um, and her colleagues at the Brookings Institution have written about, you know, early invest early and often. 
and have, have shown if we take best practices, interventions from early childhood through to adolescence and, and, and play all of them, right, we can, you know, there can be enormous returns on that investment and, 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 and um, quite a bit of social mobility. Um, I think, you know, the, um, this idea that kids from Baltimore and um, not just youth, this period of life, but, but, but youth in Baltimore, you know, who, who people become familiar with through the wire or through these um, viral but limited stories in the media, right? There's a sense that um, right there, there, it, there is a hopelessness and it's easy to write them off. And I think, you know, obviously you've talked about some of this in your own work and, and, you know, the sort of myths around, uh, around the poor. And I think that what um, is so important to remember is that at a time when we have, such high levels of economic segregation and still uh, tenacious levels of racial segregation, right? It makes it, it, you know, it makes it easy for people in different social classes and by in different races to become strangers to each other because yeah. we don't live together and yeah. it's, we you know, we, we don't go to school together. And when you have, you know, big gulfs like that, I mean, these, these peak levels of, of segregation by residents, you know, um, then you're vulnerable to poor sources of information, yep. say about the poor, right? If you're a middle-class person um, and not in these neighborhoods and not without any real world, you know, exposure. And it's easy then to say, oh, this extreme that we see on television or the most aggravating and threatening aspects of inner city life that get put on the news, this is the norm. Right. And then it becomes easy to say these kids are threats. These kids are those kids, not our kids, as, as Robert Putnam calls calls them, not our kids. And then it becomes difficult to garner policy support, and um, it in, you know engenders a zero sum game way of thinking about public policy that I think is corrosive. Um, even in the face of good ideas about what to do and evidence based policy, how do we build support? And I think, you know, part of what we hope to do in the book, but also I think is is the role of, 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 of good journalism and, and you know, well-disseminated social science and, you know, all kinds of policy innovations, you know, try to think about how we do this. But I, I think it's, um, it's a key piece here uh, to, to keep in mind. Um, so what are you working on next? So we are working on a number of different things here. I, I, I co-run uh, the Poverty and Inequality Research Lab here at Hopkins with uh, with Kathy Eden mm-hmm. uh, and our team of, of incredible graduate students, postdocs and undergraduate students. Uh, we are um, working on a few projects that are related to some of the themes in the book. Um, I'm uh, studying another um, major housing intervention here in Baltimore, the Baltimore Housing Mobility Program that was launched uh, similar to that Chicago program, uh, launched out of a a class action desegregation lawsuit in the 90s, where Baltimore public housing families sued um, the the Housing Authority of Baltimore City and and HUD for for segregating them in, in, you know, only the, the, the poorest and most um, racially isolated communities in Baltimore. This case um, uh, came to um, a liability decision in 2005, and then I, I testified in the remedial phase. Um, and as a result of that, um, began to, to uh, get to know the program and then um, got access to the data and started to follow the now nearly 3,000 families in inner city Baltimore who have moved 
to um, more affluent neighborhoods and school districts across central Maryland. And so we are following those families over time. Um, now we've, we've been doing that for about 12 years, uh, looking at children's achievement in school and um uh, you know, largely focused on that transition to, to school and uh, the effects of, of being in higher resource schools and safer neighborhoods. Um, we are also launching um, an, a study of, of uh, post-secondary decisions among disadvantaged youth in Baltimore. Um, you know, we this 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 for-profit the, the popularity of the for-profit schools got me really thinking. Is this you know choice? And we find in the book, you know, it's based in part not on the maybe not necessarily on poor information about the benefits of a bachelor's degree, but on good information about how likely it is that bad things will happen to you over the course of four years. So you might as well try to get something done now, right? This expectation of negative shocks is part of the decision-making process is a very different way to think about investments in higher education. And so I'm working with um, an economist here, Nick Papa George, and an economist at American University, Seth Gershenson, to combine insights from um, from uh, behavioral uh, modeling and, and economics and um, our insights in sociology to really get a sense of of what the what beliefs are about the payoffs to different educational investments. Why young people, you know, do invest differently at, at, at you know thinking about the sub baccalaureate level versus the four year level. And we're partnering with the Baltimore City Community College and um, the College and Career Readiness Division of of the city schools to try to help you know get you have an iterative process of what's going on on the ground and what um, you know and what we're learning. And so I'm very excited about that. That's just in the hopper. Um, and um, a third main area is uh, looking at neighborhood change and revitalization in Baltimore. Uh, there are a lot of neighborhoods in Baltimore where there's new investment and uh, you know high poverty neighborhoods that have seen very little uh, activity now getting some investment while others don't. You know why does that happen? Who's moving in? Um, you know what what are some of these decisions being made by property owners and developers and residents? And so you know it's a different way of coming at place. And saying, well, how does place become, how does place change um, as opposed to just what happens when people move into different places? We have been speaking with Stephanie DeLuca. She is the co-author with Susan Clampett-Lundquist and Catherine Eden of Coming of Age in the Other America from the Russell Sage Foundation. Uh, Stephanie, thank you so much for your time today. It's been a real pleasure. Oh, thank you so much, Stephen. Uh, the pleasure is all mine. I'm glad to be here. 